continue right where we left off in the last broadcast. And they had uh, teeth like lion's teeth. This we were talking about the locusts. You know, it's we do not have the indication as to the size of these locusts, only that they are like locusts. Again, they're not uh, they're not locusts in the strict sense of the term. They're more devourers, like locusts are devourers. But here, the descriptions of them would indicate that they're much more than these small six-inch at the most uh, insects. For example, they have faces like the face of a man, hair like the hair of women, teeth, crowns on their heads, teeth like the teeth of lions. It's more how they're described that's significant. Again, the face of a man, so they, they do not appear so ghastly, except that, and they have the appearance that, are, that connect them somehow to things that humans would recognize. Men, women, they have what looks like orders of rank, crowns of gold. It looks like, it's not, it looks like crowns of gold on their heads. Something like gold. They had crowns on their heads made of something that looked like gold, and so on. Now, their teeth were like the teeth of lions' teeth. In the great Uh, vision of Daniel uh, in Daniel 7 and again what we will see in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, the feature of the lion is that of a predatory beast which also represents a kingdom. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and this creature with seven heads, ten horns, all of them represented kingdoms, all of them representing predatory kingdoms. So kingdoms such as the Babylonian Empire that lived upon, that, that existed upon the earth, kingdoms such as the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, You know how we get empires? We get empires because someone, some king, some ruler, has the vision of extending his domain. Now in history that all sounds quite benign and we actually refer to it as civilization. But you know what it means when it actually takes form? It means you go out and you conquer other people. Now you conquer people, you bring them into subjection to your rule, which means you have to kill everybody who resists you in order to subjugate the rest. That's exactly how this beast was described 
in, Revel- in Daniel 7. It crushed and devoured its victims, is the language, and it trampled down that which was left. All empires come to prominence by crushing and devouring and trampling down what is left of the humanity over whom they advance with the specific intent of bringing them into their domain and under their dominion. That's how kingdoms are formed. Why are these locusts described as having teeth like lion's teeth? What are lion's teeth? Well, first, it references a prior kingdom to the one with seven heads and ten horns that will be introduced in Revelation 13 momentarily in terms of reading in this book. But it tells us that the, the, the three kingdoms defined previously in Daniel 7 as the lion, the bear, and the leopard, and defined again in Revelation 13 as the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Uh, one is looking forward into history, the nearest one to Daniel, the nearest of these predatory kingdoms to Daniel, was the lion. Then uh, the bear was further in time, the leopard more distant. But from John's time uh, in Revelation 13, the leopard was the closest, being the furthest from Daniel, the bear being further back toward Daniel, and the lion being the most distant and closest to Daniel. What does it tell us? What does this tell us? It tells us that the predatory nature of these kingdoms has been central to and intimately and integrally interwoven into the activities on the earth of the demonic funneled through kingdoms. But now that they are here and they're not having to move through kingdoms, they're described as they actually are, teeth of the devourers. It's interesting that in um, both Daniel and the Revelation, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, much attention is given to the teeth and the claws of that lion, of of that uh, global kingdom with seven heads and ten horns, its teeth and its claws. It has iron teeth and bronze claws with which it devours. Again, the principle being that these are not beings who represent kingdoms that exist for the good of humanity. They exist to dominate humans and to herd them into one central global idea, which is in turn dominated by that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, as the Scriptures say here in the book of Revelation chapter 12, the chapter that comes before chapter 13. 
So we can see, we can see the progression of these predatory beasts. They have breastplates like the breastplates, uh, like they have breastplates of, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Breastplates were typically armor for war. The Roman army uh, had standard breastplates. They were front and back. Uh, all breastplates are two, uh, a two-piece portion of the armor that protect the heart. So these uh, creatures, these demonic creatures that, that look like horses with faces like men, with hair like women, with, uh, with teeth like the teeth of lions, are clad in breastplates of, that look like iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. So a chariot that is drawn by many horses, you have the thundering of the hooves of the many horses running into battle. Now, it's amazing to me how silly notions catch on when people have no soundness in their understanding of Scripture. I'm sure many of you have read um, or even heard preachers in the pulpit commenting on uh, this passage of the book of Revelation, talking about how John could not understand the, the swishing sound of the rotor blades of a helicopter in his day. So he analogized that sound to uh, horses running into battle, but really they would say he was trying to describe helicopters. Such bogus nonsense, silly, uh, pitiful actually. Here he's talking about an environment of war where these demonic spirits, these are demonic spirits, they aren't helicopters. These are demonic spirits that don't look like anything you've ever seen before, although they, they represent kind of a cobbled together set of imageries or images, faces like men, um, but those faces containing uh, teeth like, like the teeth of lions, <coughs> the faces being draped by hair that looks like women's hair, but then the creatures themselves look like horses clad in armor for battle. And they're running into battle and their, their activities sound like perhaps a chariot with six horses, 
uh, in a uh, more of four horses going into battle, more or less the Ben-Hur style of horses, making, making more than the usual amount of noise. Uh, typically you had one horse pulling one chariot and that sound was understandable, uh, recognizable to those who, un, who lived in that time. But with many horses running into battle, chariots with many horses running into battle, uh, that's a different thing. And it may well also mean the sound of uh, horses and chariots running into battle. The point is that these aren't horses and they aren't pulling chariots. He's just analogizing to the sound that would be made with which the ancient world would have been familiar to this kind of military activity. They had tails like scorpions, these horse-like looking things with human faces and hair and teeth like lions, with crowns like crowns like something like gold on their heads. They had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails, completing the analogy to serpents. Power was given to them for five months. We've, we've already touched that, five being the number of grace representing the withdrawing of grace and power being given, uh, they, didn't, they do not inherently possess power, they are exousias of God's judgments. They're the executives carrying out God's judgments for this period of time, the antithesis of grace, because this is judgment, not grace. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Here again, this is not the same angel that had the key to the bottomless pit. This one came up out of the pit. And I find it interesting that it would say that they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name by the way in Hebrew is destroyer and in Greek the same thing, destroyer. I've already offered the view that the real danger of this group coming out of the abyss is that they were part of the command structure of the angels as they rebelled against God because they even have a king over them. I do not, this is not a synonym for Satan. He would be, this, this, this king would be under in rank under Satan, but a figure whose, you know, God, 
let's understand, God doesn't allow the enemy to simply do what the enemy would have done. He sets the meets and bounds as to what the enemy could do in the same way he sets the meets and bounds of what humans can do. We have this idea that angels and humans are just, quote, free moral agents and they get to do whatever they want to whenever they want to. That's far from what is true. This freedom to choose is limited by the scope of choice that God gives. You can choose between the things God gives you, you can't choose just whatever you're going to do. Whether you're an angel, whether you're a demon, a fallen angel, an angel that hasn't sinned, a human, you cannot simply do in creation whatever you want to do whenever you want to. Freedom of choice does not mean that, never has. That's an illusion. God sets the boundaries of the existences of men. He tells them what boundaries they may move around within. He appoints the lands wherein they are to dwell and He sets the times in which they are to be born. And the same thing is true of angels. In a moment we will see four great angels who are by the great river Euphrates and they were bound. What I'm putting forth is this thought that there is an orderliness to the operation of the demonic when it comes out of the abyss that is not the typical character of what we, are, what we see in the activities of the, of the fallen angels, of the demonic, even right now on the earth. They fight with each other, they contend with each other, they attempt to gain positions of power and the like. But it would appear to me that what God did when He cast these angels out of heaven, some of them He bound in the abyss. And I'm saying that it is my conviction that those who were bound in the abyss were key, key to the arrangement and the uh, enforcement of demonic uh, imperatives upon the earth and had they not been bound for a certain time and bound in the abyss, they would have organized in a much more formidable way in taking over human beings and the societies of human beings. That's what I'm saying. And the, the reason the demonic that were in the man in the country of Gadara, referenced in Luke 8, the reason they didn't want to go to the abyss is they did not want to be under the harsh stricture of these controlling spirits because they would lose whatever freedom or independence they had to function in the way they had been functioning. Because what we see of them, this is a category of warring angels. 
This is perhaps that group known as the Seraphs, the, the, perhaps part of the company that would remain, uh, par, perhaps part of the company that was originally assigned to Michael, that great angel who knows how to do war. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Before that, they armored, the shape of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now if you're looking at just one horse, you can't tell that it's, look, it's like it's preparing for battle. When do you tell that horses are prepared for battle? Simple, when they're, in, when they're formed up in battle formations. These angels, these demons, are considered to be like horses prepared for battle. It's not the swarming of locusts that we typically think of, but they're formed up in battle array and fierce by rank. And the, the, the sound of their wings was like horses and chariots, chariots with many horses running into battle. I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that the abundance of reference to battle formations, battle attitudes, battle, um, um, battle metaphors are telling us something about why these creatures were held in the abyss. And now that they've been, uh, and they were held in chains, by the way, in the abyss. Now that they're up out of the abyss and they're moving to torment human beings, they're doing so in more or less the systematic way that um, uh, locusts would strip a field. They're proceeding in a military style formation and they have a king over them. These are not this, this does not appear at all to be a rabble, to be like everybody doing everything, doing all of these creatures doing what's right in their own estimation. The reference to the king would suggest order and order of rank, order of formation, order of proceeding. They mean business. They will get done what they were let out to do, but they don't stop there. They remain on the earth. And the king over them is destroyer. So guess what this company really wants to do? It wants to destroy. Destroy whom? Destroy mankind.
they will lead an army that will destroy a third of mankind when they're done tormenting men with the stings that are in their tails. And again, it's metaphorical in the sense that they don't actually have horses' tails that are like scorpions that sting. Um, And it's not that they're stinging men with the sting of scorpions. It's that they're denying men the understanding, the wisdom, the light, and that they are controlling the options that men have with which to formulate opinions and views. And they're doing that primarily from a position of being invisible. Terrifying thing. Terrifying things. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Remember now, this judgment under the seventh bowl, there were seven trumpets. The bowls were given by one of the four living creatures. And the trumpeteers were told when to blow their trumpets, which tell us what? That the saints in heaven control the game. They control exactly what is coming forth, when it's coming forth, and what it will do. Judgment, you see, has been handed to the saints. We know that this is true on the basis of the plain meaning of Scripture. God, who at at sundry times and in different ways spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us Quite literally, it means in Son. So all judgment was committed into the hands of Christ, the pattern Son, who in turn commits the judgments to the saints when they cry out and say to Him, How long, O Lord, will you permit these things to be so? He then seals their number, in heaven and on earth, He seals their number so that they are exempt from the woes that He's about to bring on the earth in the way that Israel was behind doors with the blood on it in Goshen, the region set apart for them. So we inhabit the kingdom of God in the earth under the rule of fathers, there's orderliness, and the righteousness of God prevails in His house while the rest of the earth experiences first four trumpets and then subsequently three trumpets of woe. And we've talked about the first of these trumpets of woe. Two more remain. 
That's what we'll continue to study. Join me then. I'm Sam Soling. Bye-bye.